You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So again, John chapter 12, verse 27. Um, you know, I had told you guys last week that whenever Jesus speaks in one interaction, uh, I try to preach it all in one sermon. Uh, because that's how the original hearers would have heard it. So this is still, I didn't do that last week. I kind of gave you guys a heads up on that. So this is really a continuation of last week. You're no worse off if you weren't here last week, because I'm going to be a pretty good summarizer of what we talked about last week. But everything that we hear this morning is likewise from last week in response to an event, right? Last week, some Greeks came up to the Passover feast asking for Jesus. And that was abnormal, we said, that some ethnic Greeks would be coming up from Greece to a Jewish feast, and when they get there, asking for Jesus. Because if you were Greek, and you were circumcised, and were subscribing to the Jewish faith, then likely you were anti-Jesus at this point in in Jesus' history, because that's what the ethnic Jews were, is they were opposed to Jesus. In fact, they're going to crucify him in a couple days. But these guys are coming up to a Jewish feast, being non-Jews, and and in coming to the feast are seeking out Jesus. They ask for him. So they go to Philip, and they say, Philip, we want to see Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew, and he's like, Andrew, these Greeks, they want to see Jesus. And then Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And they're like, there are these Greeks who have come up to the feast, and they're asking for you. And everything that flowed last week was Jesus' response to this event. And so last week, just kind of quick summary, we said that Jesus' response was, The hour has come. It is time. The nations, the people of the earth, have started to to be drawn to me. This is the very purpose for which I've come. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we said that by glorified, he means crucified. He was talking about his death, which he's going to clarify this morning. And in a parable, he said that unless a, a a, 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 a seed of grain falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so we answered the question, why did Jesus die? And we said the answer was to bear much fruit. And then we asked the question, well, who is the fruit? And we answered the question, well, you are the fruit, church. That in dying, that Jesus ransomed a people unto himself, and he made a people who were not a people. He produced you, his church, his people. He put new life in spiritually dead beings. He bore much fruit. So why did Jesus die? To bear fruit. Who is the fruit? You are the fruit. And then kind of point three was, what does Jesus, how does Jesus describe that fruit? What does a fruit look like? And he said, well, my fruit follow me. Namely, they follow me into my death. And in dying, fruit bears more fruit, and the kingdom of God advances, and the church advances. And so continuing this kind of monologue, we pick up in verse 27 this morning, and Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose... I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, I want you guys to track with me the whole time that I'm speaking this morning that everything Jesus says in this passage and in last week's passage is in regard to what he called this hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Everything he's talking about points to this hour, the hour of his death, this this extravagant, extraordinary, fruit-bearing death. That hour. 
in regards to that hour, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. This word soul is the same word that is used for life. Oftentimes it's used to kind of describe the seat of the emotions is how theologians like to describe this word. The seat of the emotions. Maybe a better word for you might be heart or mind. However you regard the place where the fullness of your emotions dwell is the place that Jesus is regarding here when he says that it is his soul that is troubled. The very seat of my emotions is agitated. It is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but it's for this purpose I've come to this hour, Jesus says. So, Father, glorify your name. We see something on display in these words here that is kind of hard for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. And what that is, is we're seeing the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. You see, when God became flesh, when when God the Father sent the Son, when God, the triune Godhead, sent one person of the Godhead, the Son, Jesus, to earth to take on human flesh, to become like us, he dwelled on this earth with a dual nature. His deity, his Godhood, and his humanity, taking the likeness of men. And this is like, okay, one God in three persons was hard enough. Now one person of the three persons is, has two natures. Like this, it, it gets hard, right? And honestly, I'm not going to stand up here and try to make it easy because it's not. But Jesus, God, the Son, took on human flesh. And here's why it's important for us to wrap our head around that this morning. Because when Jesus talks about his soul being troubled, he's not talking about something that you can't relate to. He's talking about something that you very much can relate to. We're talking about actual soul agitation as he fixed his eyes on the hour that was to come, the hour he was regarding, the hour of his death. To say it more directly, however uncomfortable uncomfortable this might make you feel, death on the cross for your sin scared Jesus. He trembled. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood so extreme was the trouble in his soul he felt it he understood what he was doing and he had a very rational response to it this is terrifying and of course that was his human nature on display but why is it important that we see this well here's why Because we can look at the God nature of Jesus and use it to kind of inoculate all of the other attributes that he displays to us. Where we kind of neutralize or become unimpressed with all that he did in the flesh. Because if he's God, well, of course. Because if he's God, well, of course, right? Think about it like this. I spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. We tend to put righteousness, for an example, in two buckets, right? There's the righteousness that is all but expected, that you don't get any applause for, right? So if you work at a retailer, maybe for just to give a, an easy example, you work at a retailer and every day you don't steal money from the register, nobody's clapping for you afterwards, right? 
But when you find a wallet on the ground and you don't lift the 20 out of it before you return it, or you return it at all, or you find the ID and you look up the address and you take it to the guy, you get praise for going out of your way to do the right thing. Kind of these two buckets, one of them we're unimpressed with, one of them we're impressed with. And here's why. Because when we look at the, at the opportunity that you had to do the wrong thing, and we see that you elected to do the right thing, we find this to be praiseworthy. Now, in our brokenness, I'm kind of going in the depths of my thoughts here, but in, my, in our brokenness, I think that really what it comes down to is that we want glory. We celebrate certain types of, of righteousness because it shows that you're more righteous than another. That everyone can be expected to not murder. Like every day that you go on not murdering, you don't get the hand of applause, right? But there are certain acts of righteousness that make you even better than someone who doesn't murder. And so these get acts of applause. We're, we're glory seekers. And I think that's most often why we put these acts of righteousness in two different buckets. Again, this for some of you is going to land like heresy. So come to GC and, and like come at me so we can talk about it. Because I swear to you it's true. God, what makes him good, what makes him righteous, what makes his character so overwhelmingly good is that the only thing bridling him from doing whatever he wants, good or evil, is his own character. There is nobody keeping God in check. There is nobody policing God. God of all wisdom, God who can see all possible outcomes, God who can see every possible chain of actions, God who, who has the power and the ability to do anything is restrained only by the bounds of his own nature. Only by the bounds of his own nature. Why does God not snap his fingers and make this whole thing disappear? Because he's bound by the goodness of his own nature. Why do I say this? I say this because Jesus Christ was tempted in the 40 days in the wilderness by his enemy, Satan, wasn't he? It says that he was tempted and yet without sin. Well, how can Jesus be tempted if he was incapable of giving in to the temptation, right? We're unimpressed with a temptation if we say, well, you, well, you were in, as if he's a machine, as if he's a robot, as if he's some alien being, as if he's Spock, right? Like where he was always just going to do the thing, but there are little windows into his humanity that we see like this or in the garden when he prays a prayer like, not my will but yours. Like, hold on, Jesus, you've gone to such great lengths in this, in this book. If you've been following with me week by week, Jesus has said maybe more than anything else in his ministry, I and the Father are one. I only do the will of him who sent me. I only say the things that my Father is saying. Our wills are perfectly aligned. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus can pray a prayer authentically that sounds like not my will, but yours. What are we talking about? Or we see a moment like this, now is my soul troubled? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Well, there's two things we see here. When Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? In the garden, he says that. The answer to that question is, yes, that's what you should say. Say it. Go for it, Jesus. 
Because he's showing us something about his humanity, and he's showing us something about temptation. This is such a small application, but I want you to take it anyway, just because I, I get to know you guys, and I see you guys fighting the good fight and hearing these things. Listen, it is not sin for you to be tempted. Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, was super hungry. And when Satan puts it in his ear, why don't you just make some bread, man? That sounded good to Jesus. Bread sounded great. But insofar as you are tempted and then elect to follow through with the will of God, that is true righteousness. So what we see Jesus doing in the flesh as he, as he brings into one being the perfect nature of God and the corrupted flesh of man, and he walks among us as the God-man, Jesus, fully God and fully human, all at the same time, what we see is that the corrupted nature of the flesh was incapable or was not powerful enough to overcome the deity of Jesus in that he was able in the flesh to be tempted. This is biblical and yet without sin. In other words, there was a lot of words to say that Jesus wasn't smiling when he drank the cup of God's wrath. He wasn't glad to do it in the way that we might ascribe to him. Like he was just doing what was only natural to him. Like he's been looking forward to this moment since eternity past. He wasn't like, watch this as he like jumped off the roof into the pool. It wasn't nothing to him. It was as horrifying as it sounds. And even thinking about it here a few days before it would happen, his soul is troubled. And yet he's resolved to not be saved from the hour, but to fulfill the purpose of the hour. That's verse 27. Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this purpose I've come to, the, to this hour. Well, what purpose? Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, do we have a slide for it? We read, this is where the angels are declaring at the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. At his birth, it was declared that his arrival was for the glory of God the highest and for peace of the peoples of the earth for whom he is pleased. And here, Jesus is again affirming as he comes to the end of his life, Father, glorify your name as I do what? Bring peace to those with whom you are pleased. Why is he dying? To bear much fruit. To bring peace to the nations. To make children out of rebels. To make sons out of orphans. So as he comes to do what was declared over him at his birth, to glorify God and to bring peace to the people with whom he is pleased. He says, it was all for this reason that I've come to this hour. So Father, do what we've set out to do. Glorify your name. Glorify your name. When we talk about the glory of God, sometimes it feels like a nebulous term, doesn't it? The glory of God. 
Who could define such a term, such an idea? The glory of God. The glory of God. And yet every week it seems like I'm up here espousing the glory of Jesus, the riches and the majesty of the glory of Jesus. Father, let me magnify the glory of Jesus. What does it mean? It means that we would behold the truth about who he is. See, we were made as his image bearers. You know this. We were made to reflect his image. We were made to glorify him and in glorifying him to find our deepest satisfaction, our joy, our contentment. This is like anything. You're like, if you try to like use a hammer to sew, it's not joyful. You use a hammer to whack a nail, it feels pretty good, right? You were made for a purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him. And to the extent that you reflect his glory is the extent to which you enjoy peace because you're doing what you were made for. So Jesus is after your joy when he is after the glory of the Father. He says, let's do it. And a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it. This is the Father speaking. And I will glorify it again. Now, he has glorified his name in all things at all times. That's true. But he's also just raised Lazarus from the dead, and I'm pretty sure we're talking at least about that. Like, we, we went several weeks through the resurrection of Lazarus. He's like, hey, I just did it. Glorified because he said that this death is for the glory of God, right? And so then he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he's like, it's like a prelude to what's going to happen. He's like, yeah, I'll do it again. But think about what that sounded like to Jesus' ear to be remembered, to be reminded by the Father what he'd done with Lazarus and what he will do again as he looked with terror upon the hour of his death, the assurance of the Father upon him. I'll do it again. I'll do it again. Jesus, knowing this, still encouraged in his humanity by the reminder. Guys, this is a model you think you know things? You got to hear them again anyway. I know you know things. I know things. Sometimes I got to beg you guys in GC to like tell me things that you think I already know. Tell me again. I know. Obviously, I know. I'm up here telling you. Tell me. Obviously, he knew. He's the one going to the cross. Father tells him again anyway. You think that when Jesus says to the Father, glorify your name, that the Father was like, I wasn't going to, but now that you've asked, I'm going to do it. No, but he loves the prayer, and he loves to answer it. It's a, this is a relational peak that we're getting into the window of the relationship between the Father and the Son, and the nature of his sustenance in the flesh. And so he speaks, I've glorified and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, and they, some said that it thundered, others said an angel spoken to him, and Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Remember, we're talking about the hour that he's referring to, the hour of his death. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now is the judgment of this world. 
Church, this is one of the loudest things that I can declare over you, and it's why I say some of these things as often as I do. When we talk about now, Jesus talking about now being the judgment of this world, he meant now. So many of us are living our lives either looking to the future of what's going to come or looking to the past, and we're not understanding what he means by now. When Jesus went to Calvary, when he went to the cross, Father God had already searched out over all the world, and he knew, he identified all of those who would be covered by the blood of Christ, all of those who would be declared spotless and righteous by the blood of Christ, and he gathered all of these people, you guys, the fruit, and he heaped you upon the shoulders of the Son, and then he poured out his wrath upon the Son, and Jesus died dead. But when he died on the cross, church, with you upon it, not just your sin, hear this clearly, okay? Because so often I think what we do is we say, well, what, what God did is he took my sin, he put it on Jesus, and then when Jesus died, he kind of gave me a clean slate. All my past sins are forgiven. So much do I know we believe this, that we tend to this, that there's literally like in church history, like, bad, hard heresies in this, like where people believe that water baptism is what cleansed you of your past sin, so they would delay it as late in life as possible, but wouldn't want to like take too much of a risk, because like what if you die? And so like you'd be like, I want to get baptized as late in my life as possible so that I can be washed of all, but then after I'm washed of all my former sins, now I maintain my righteousness and I pay off any sins that come after my baptism through like contrition, through like, you know, whether I'm confessing to a priest or whatever. Obviously, garbage theology. I hope that hits you as garbage theology. But you don't get there overnight. You get there with just that seed of unbelief. That sure, the cross of Christ can forgive me for the sins I've already committed, but now I'm forgiven and I've sinned again. Well, now what? There's a crisis, right? No. Your very self, your sin nature sinners were pinned to Jesus so that when he died, you died. And when he rose, you didn't rise. Instead, what rose was a new creation. In its stead, you've been made new. You weren't wiped clean and then given another try at it. You were made new so that your very nature has changed. Church, I know it doesn't always feel like your nature has changed. I know that. But when you sin now in the new nature, you are doing what is contrary to your nature. When you sinned before, you were sinning what is only right according to your nature. It just made sense because you're a sinner. Now what you're doing is stupid. What you were doing before just makes sense because you've been given a new nature because the former self has died with Christ, but you've been raised to newness of life and the Spirit, which means at any given moment by the power of the Spirit, you can bear fruit. This is the gift in the now. There's a book that I love uh, by Paul Miller. It's called The J-Curve. You should read it if you get a minute. It's short, but he talks about this idea from last week about, uh, about life through death, that you die and then you experience life. That's where he gets the J from. He says that in this life, we experience four J curves. The first one is Jesus's J curve. He literally died, and then he literally rose. 
The second is the J-curve that we experience by faith, that we are joined with Jesus in his literal death and resurrection by faith, that through faith in him, we, our former self, dies, and our newness, in the newness of life, we are raised to new life. Then he talks about the today, the now, that we daily die and, are, and daily experience new life as we love people who are hard to love, as we obey Jesus, as we repent of our sin, as we put down our, our lesser righteousness and we cling to him, the daily dying in new life of the Christian life. And then ultimately we look ahead to the final J-curve where we will literally die a bodily death and will literally be given a glorified new body and raised to new life in perfect eternity with the sun, right? These four J-curves. I think sometimes that we get confused because we think there's only one. Like, how do we cram them all into this passage? But we've been given more than this passage. We understand that this is an already and not yet situation. So he says, now, here in uh, verse, uh, verse 30, 31, now is the judgment of this world. This is what I mean when I say to you, church, that your judgment, your death, is a historical event. I know it's mind-boggling, but your judgment, your death, is a historical event. It already happened. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. And this is really good news because there's another judgment coming. But you don't have to guess at what's happening at yours because yours is a historical event. I think I got to hit on that more in a minute. First, let's let, let Jesus keep speaking. He says, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, the ruler of this world, he means Satan. He's also sometimes called the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who's been given dominion over all things. He's been just killing it in his reign on earth for a long time doing a good job. And he must have been chomping at the bit to be somewhat speculative here when God, by choice, put on human flesh. Because Satan has his way with human flesh, doesn't he? So seeing God in human flesh must have felt like, here's my chance for Satan. So much so that for 40 days he tempted him in the, in the desert. And this was, he, be, he wouldn't have done it unless he thought he might be victorious, right? When it says that Satan went into Judas in order that Judas would betray Jesus, in order that Jesus would be crucified, Satan is believing in doing so that this is my chance to kill God, finally. How thwarted must he have felt when it is through this hour, through his glorification, through being lifted up, through his crucifixion, that he experiences his defeat, that he experiences being cast out of the ransomed church of God. Satan no longer has dominion and power over the remnant that belongs to Jesus. So when Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world would be cast out. He meant it. Watch this. He dies, and, G and Satan is cast out of the church. He dies, and your sin is judged. Guys, your sin's been judged. Judgment's been poured out on you. 
But thanks be to God, it was pinned upon Jesus when it was poured out. So it's no longer you who live. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, so that the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus says to them, The light's among you. A little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And so he's just said, when I am lifted up, he he said this so that everyone would understand what he was talking about. He's talking about being crucified. So when my fruit-bearing death my seed-cracking death, this blooming death that produces a kingdom within the church of Christ, this crucifixion happens and the judgment of the earth is poured out in this moment and the ruler of this world, Satan, is cast out in this moment. All of this, I will draw all people to myself. Why did this hour come that the Father would be glorified and that the Father would glorify the Son How will he be glorified? By bearing fruit, by drawing all people to himself, not just the Greeks, but the nations, that every knee would bow, every tongue would confess, like like we preached last week. This is how the Father will be glorified, through the drawing of all people to himself. And how ironic, right, that as he says, I will draw all people to myself, he immediately is met with opposition. Immediately, the crowds around him are like, well, hold on a minute. What do you mean you're going to die? What are you talking about? Because we know the law. Law says that Christ is going to remain forever. How can you say this? Who is this son of man? He meets accusers once again. Challengers once again. People who want Jesus to answer to him once again. And how does he answer them? Not directly. He doesn't want any part of that. He looks at them with compassion and with love. And he says to them, the light is among you a little while longer. And notice what he's calling himself here, the light, again. And walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He's looking at those who in a couple of days are going to crucify him, those who do not believe him, those who are saying, answer to me, prove it. This isn't right. doesn't match up with my understanding. He says, I'm right here. I'm right here. While I'm still here, it's not too late. Walk with me. Can't you see? Don't let the darkness overtake you. Walk with me while you have the light. Believe in me that you may become what? Sons of light. Two, hours be- two days before he's going to die at the hands of these people who will not believe in him. He's still making his appeal for them to turn, to repent, to come to him. Still. For him, it's never too late. For him, the urgency with which he chases after the remnant, it is beautiful. This is the kind of pursuit that he has for you, that he had for you. 
My very first prayer, I've told this story before, my very first prayer, well, I like to call it a shaken fist prayer, where I just kind of became aware of some generalities about God and about me. So I shook my fist at God and I said, whatever's wrong with me, whatever fault you find in me, it's definitely got to be your fault. Because if you're God, well, should have made me different. Can't be my fault if it's your fault. And before God ever swept in behind that prayer with comfort about who he really is and what I was getting wrong, what he showed me louder than anything was, if I'm God, if I'm unjust, kind of tough. Because I'm God. If I'm God, I get to do whatever I want to do. And we know that this is not generally the tone of God, but it is the tone of discipline for a rebel who is becoming a son. This was a God who was showing me that before I can fully acknowledge him as God, I can't have him answering to me. He was humbling me like Job. And this is where I want to circle back to that point that I was getting a lot of blank stares on. What makes the goodness of God so good as opposed to yours is that there's nothing bridling him but him. Our God sees all. Everything that one could do, God is aware of that. And so all of the things that he doesn't do, he doesn't do on purpose. And all of the things he does, he does on purpose. He is contained only by his own nature. The bounds around his activity, around how he treats you, around what he does with his creation, are only bounds that he drew with his own finger. He's good by choice. It's really good news because that means that we're not being governed by a robot. Anyway, we see here, lastly, that Jesus says that when he's lifted up from the earth, that he will draw all people to himself, that even these who are accusing him may become sons of light. The urgency with which Jesus desires this is not based on some fictional thing. It's not based on anything um, that, that we can dismiss as if um, all will come to be sons of God. I want to flip really quickly to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Y'all are like, here we go. Nin Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, John writes, and behold, a white horse. Pastor Brett preached two weeks ago that Jesus entered Jerusalem on the triumphal entry on a beast of burden, on a donkey, meaning I come bearing peace I come extending an olive branch. I come still welcoming you in to mercy's door while it is open. I come, I, I, cru I am crucified that I might draw unto myself all the world that many would be saved. Open invitation. Here, he's on a white horse, not a beast of burden. 
but a conquering beast. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be glorified. The Father and the Son will be glorified. Thank God that your judgment, the judgment of the world, is now according to Jesus. Because the judgment that is to come is to gather up all of those who were not pinned on the cross with Jesus who have yet to meet judgment. This is what we mean when we say that we will make an answer for sin. But it will be pinned upon Jesus when the wrath of God is poured out or we will still be bearing it upon our own shoulders. And goodness, church, we cannot stand before holy God with our sin still upon us. We need that payment. And that's why it's such good news. And so in closing, I want you guys to see that while it is true, that God will be glorified one way or the other. That his heart here in this passage is bent toward the sinner. That he would look upon the payment with trembling knees and proceed. Point number one is the main point, guys, this morning. Hear it again and again. It's just not as incredible. I think that only from the advantage of looking backward after we kind of know the whole story can we then look at the events and understand them differently than they were in the moment. We knew that Jesus was always going to go to the cross in the one sense, right? But in the other sense, this moment actually happened. And again in the garden, where he looked at what was ahead of him and his knees shook, and he called out to the Father. And the Father had to sustain him like he did all the days of his earthly ministry to get him all the way home. What it means is that if you were standing there that day, you'd be begging Jesus, please follow through. When he's pinned to the cross and then they're taunting him and saying, save yourself, you'd be begging him, please don't. When he's crying out in the garden, Father, please let this cup pass from me, you'd be begging him, Jesus, please don't. You're my only hope. There was real tension for the world that Jesus resolved. It wasn't enough for Jesus to be willing to obey, he had to actually obey. He had to do it, and he's done it. He's done it, guys. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 
His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. These are the words of our salvation. And this is what Jesus is showing us with his own words here in this passage. Even as he is taunted two days before his crucifixion, even as he is grappling, he sees it through. And he does it for you. Application. Stop assuming you know things. Know them again. Remind each other. Application two. Rest. Glory to God in the highest and peace for those in whom he is pleased. He's pleased with you, church. Rest. It is finished. Application number three. People are dying. Their sin has not yet been paid for. They've not repented and clung to Jesus for their righteousness. The kingdom advances when people join Jesus in his death and follow him likewise. It's real matters of eternity that we're talking about. But it's by his power that people are brought from death to life. It's no clever tricks. Just tell people about the Jesus who saved you. As you think about certain names and faces here in closing, we're going to pray together. We're going to thank Jesus together for what he's done for us, and we're going to ask him to continue forward through us and despite us to ransom more and more from every nation like has been the plan from eternity past to glorify the Son.